Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Coaching Call podcast. On this podcast, we'll cover various types of coaching by trainers in sports, martial arts, fitness, and business. We'll discuss each coach's methods to getting the most out of their respective athletes or clients and how they attempt to change the platform in which they coach. Join us on a fun adventure as we discuss unique coaching styles. We've all been coached before in school, at work, or on a team. Coaching is a universal part of how we get others to get something done. Join your host, Raphael, and his guests on this unique journey in coaching. Hi, I'm Sifu Raphael, and this is the Coaching Call Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoy my show, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. To donate, go to paypal.me slash Raphael. That's S-I-F-U-R-A-F-A-E-L. I'm trying to keep this podcast free of advertisements. Anything you can donate is greatly appreciated. Thank you. I really appreciate your support. My guest today is Evelyn Lerner Grossman. Evelyn is the owner and director of the Speech Studio in Hollywood, Florida, where she specializes in speech coaching, accent reduction, dialect coaching, speech therapy, and transgender vocal training. Good morning, Evelyn. Thank you so much for joining me on the Coaching Call podcast. How are you today? I'm great, Raphael. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. It, it's a pleasure having you. One of the things that intrigued me, had me excited about talking to you, is that you help people with the way they communicate. Tell us about that. Well, the way that somebody communicates is the impression that they're going to give, especially now that with COVID going on, we haven't really had a lot of face-to-face interaction where you can kind of feel the presence of another person. So being that a lot of the work that we're doing is on Zoom, how we communicate is really like the first thing that somebody would notice about someone. And the way the way they use their voice, the way they articulate the sounds of speech, the way that they formulate their sentences even, that all has an impact. You're a speech therapist or speech coach? Well, my original training is both. I started out with acting and uh, with public speaking. I then um, got a master's degree in speech therapy, and I put it all together where I started working with clients with public speaking, and I also put my acting experience into it where I start working, where I started working with actors, and I do that as well. So when I work with actors, I work with them on reducing their accent so that they can work in the American market with a more neutral dialect. And I also work with them to give them an accent Mm. for a certain region of wherever their character lives. Or even if their character has a speech impairment, I can train them on how to sound like they have that speech impairment, realistically. Wow. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I I can understand if, if someone needs to reduce their accent or if they need to lose their accent, but to learn how to do a speech impairment. That's got to be tough, isn't it? Well, it really it really depends. With, every, with all of the work that I do 
it's very detailed. It kind of has an overall impact when you hear the results, but the way that the results are achieved are very specific. So, for example, your speech or, you know, anybody's speech who may have, let's say, they're not saying the TH sound correctly. They're not sticking their tongue out to say the mm. with the TH. They're saying a D instead, a duh. If they just change that one little sound, their overall speech will sound extremely improved. Just like a tiny detail. The same thing with a speech impairment. It's just a detail. Let's say, for example, uh, they did a very, very good job for working with the actor that was in the King's speech, and he had to be um, had to be a person who stutters, the King himself. And if you just have like a stereotypical way of presenting someone who stutters, it would be very ineffective, and it would seem very phony, and it would probably, you know, be even offensive. Mm-hmm. And so, but to really know what a true stutterer is going through. We can look at that with President Biden now. Those little details of just seeing how the person would kind of need to stop, kind of reset for a second, and then begin again, but you can see the little reset that they use. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, how, that's how you would kind of work with someone. And there's all kinds of impairments. So, you know, and I, I've learned this a lot of it is through experience. There are also resources that can be used to be able to see what these different dialects are. But all the while that I was doing, that I've been doing all this coaching, basically since like 1990, I also have been working as a speech therapist all the while where I work with every, you know, in every setting from schools to hospitals to nursing homes. Um, and also seat private clients as well for um, speech therapy types of clinical issues that they have. It's interesting that you said nursing homes. What are you doing in, in nursing homes? Because these people are not young anymore. Right. So when I was working in nursing homes, I worked with people who were having issues where they were recovering. Let's say it was in some, a lot of the people in a nursing home are there temporarily for rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And they may have had a stroke or some other disability that they have that requires therapy to be able to bring their language back, bring their pronunciation back, where their words need to become more, you know, become clearer. And they need to be able to retrieve words from their memory. Uh, not only from their memory, they can, a lot of times they can remember the word they want to say. They just can't produce it. So we work on that. There's like a weak window where they can make huge improvement after a stroke. Mm. So uh, a lot of those people, there were also, also patients who um, have dementia and other kinds of cognitive decline work with them. And a lot of the patients, for whatever reason, Many different medical reasons, including a stroke, would have issues with swallowing. A speech therapist works with that as far as their diet. And then, of course, coaching them because they don't want to eat the modified foods or the, you know, drink the modified liquids. So we have to work with them and, and essentially coach them to be able to be on board, to be able to know that if they do this, it's temporary and that they'll be able to make improvements and progress. And I think that's the whole thing also with coaching is always making sure that whoever the client is, 
knows that they're really doing well progress, they may not see their progress as much as quickly as I do. Mm -hmm. And you probably know that from coaching. Any coach knows that because we measure progress differently from the person that we're coaching. They kind of want to be there already, you know, Mm -hmm. and we just measure we measure in small increments and say, okay, you've reached this short-term goal, you've reached that short-term goal, and then we're going toward our long-term goal. So let me ask you, Evelyn, what are your thoughts on baby talk? And what I mean by baby talk is when you hear parents talking to their kids, saying the words that a child maybe can't pronounce a word correctly and the parents are saying it incorrectly, so they can kind of associate with their with their child. Are they hurting their kid by doing that, by doing baby talk? You know, I would say that I don't know that they necessarily would be hurting them, but I think it would be better for them to use the actual word. And we always have to kind of hold ourselves back from that because it's really very, it's very you feel like it's an endearing thing to be able to speak in the in the same type of language that the child is using. Mm-hmm. I think that it's better to present the correct word and the correct use of grammar. Like, for example, very often, I was saying many times, mm-hmm. even a mother would refer to herself or a father would refer to himself like, mommy will be with you in just a minute or daddy will be reading you bedtime story in five minutes. Mm-hmm. But they're referring to themselves, like daddy is saying it about daddy and mommy is saying it about herself, mm-hmm. instead of saying, I'm going to. Right, right. So it's better to use the proper language, like I'm going to this and I'm going to that. Having said all of that, there are some children that are more sensitive to those kinds of differences than others. There are some children, you know, babies right from birth. And, you know, we learn to talk before we're two years old, even though we don't start expressing it yet. Mm-hmm. They can be very resilient to any kinds of changes, any kinds of language changes. They're just going to like barrel right through it and they're going to be top speaker. But if you if you if you did speak with a child like that who did have any kind of a language delay and you may not know at that point in life that they have a language delay mm-hmm. that's already an inherent part of themselves, then they're going to be very sensitive to things like baby talk and and even it's even harder for some children to be in a bilingual situation if they already have any kinds of language development issues. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't, you know, that they shouldn't grow up in a bilingual household. I'm not saying that at all, but what I, but what I'm saying is, is that they, they, the parent needs to be aware that the child may be a little bit sensitive to, to being able to learn two languages at the same time. And also, and like you can even call baby talk another language. Mm -hmm. So that could also affect them where they will be thinking maybe that that's the way language is supposed to be structured and that maybe spaghetti is called pischetti. Mm-hmm. And they might not, you know, I mean, English was not my first language. I only spoke Yiddish until I was four years old. And it took me a while to really learn <laughs> to learn English. And I always had a little bit of an accent. I think that's how I got into being interested in doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes... Certain kids can struggle a little bit more than others. It really depends on on the child. 
But I would say that to be on the safe side, it's better to not use the baby talk. I, I totally agree. That's why I asked. Because when, mm-hmm. I, when I hear parents talking like that to their kids, and, and yes, it may be cute, but I'm like, are they helping that child <laughs> to learn the language? Because I I spoke Spanish until I was eight. I mean, I still speak it. But I came to this country when I was eight. And when I went to school, there was no Spanish spoken at my school, not by any teachers or anything. So I I was thrown into the lion's den and, and was just mm. fend for yourself. And for oh. me to learn a language without anyone helping me was, uh, I guess it was tough. But you know what? It made me a better person because I had no choice. And, and it, it definitely taught me a lot of things, you know, besides getting bullied because I didn't know the language and all that kind of stuff. So let me ask you another huh. question when it comes to kids or babies. What are, what are your thoughts on pacifiers and how long should a child have a pacifier for? Because I'm wondering if that also can have or lead into speech impediments. Sometimes a pacifier could definitely affect the way the tongue is lying in the mouth. And it can, it can also affect the roof of the mouth. And, you know, the way the tongue is lying in the mouth, the roof of the mouth, and certainly the teeth affects the way that speech is being produced, where you could then get into a problem with the letter S, where the tongue is coming too far forward. And um, it affects the vowels. It could have some overall effects. But having said that, I really think it's great for a child, you know, to be able to self-soothe mm-hmm. and to be able to have something like a pacifier to be able to feel better. Mm-hmm. And I think that they actually make them even better for the mouth now than they used to make them a long time ago. You know, right. and these things are always changing. Mm-hmm. You have, you can have a baby. And they're told they cannot sleep on their back. And then you can have a grandchild and they can only sleep on their back. Mm. And you can have a, you know, take a pacifier away when they're six months old. And then it's like, let them have it until they're 18 months old. So I don't really know what the, what is really being, what's out there in the contemporary world right now with babies and pacifiers, as far as any rule is concerned. But I think that it really depends on the parent and the child and just for them to observe and to think about slowly, you do want to eventually take away the pacifier, but I don't know that it has to be done so abruptly that it, that the baby would cry either. Right, right. You know, so um, I don't think that it does enough damage for that. Okay, just just a thought. <laughs> because I've seen mm. three-year-olds with pacifiers, and I'm like, whoa, that's too mm. long. Yeah, no, that's that's a little too long. Yeah, that's even way socially too long. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking, it's too long even socially, yeah. Right, right. So m- moving along a- as you actually have also decided that there are some people that truly, truly need your help. And and you do transgender vocal coaching as well. Tell us about that. And mm-hmm. how, how did you get into that? I would say about 10 years ago, I realized that there was a need. And I, you know, always felt that I was drawn to working with people who felt marginalized. I would say that I always felt marginalized because my parents uh, were immigrants and also had gone through a war, being Holocaust survivors, and 
being the firstborn daughter, and also felt always very, very different because of the way I was raised as opposed to many of the other people, you know, kids that I knew growing up. So being that I felt that way, I'm drawn to people who who may feel that way. And certainly people that are transgender do feel that way. And even their parents feel that they're dealing with issues for their child that are not the same issues that their friends are dealing with for their children. So we're talking about people that that really need someone, I think, to reach out and say that they would like to help them. So it's really a culture, and it's not just the voice. It has so much more to do with the person, with family issues that they may have, etc. And I found out about, like I said, 10 years ago, that there are organizations here in Florida, like there's uh, one called the Yes Organization, which is in Miami. And that is, they really do work with the families. There's also WPATH, P-A-T-H, and that has just a lot of resources that you can find online, one of which would be vocal coaching. And there also is, in Fort Lauderdale, there is an organization called SunServe, which also works with LGBTQ community, mm-hmm. and they are very supportive as well. So, so how do you how do you help someone? Obviously, you know, change their voice to say be more feminine. Well, I base I work on their pitch, and you know, the pitch is obvious that you want to speak in a higher tone and anybody can kind of raise their pitch and try to sound more feminine, but that's not all that there is to the voice you have to work with. Let's say it's working from male to female. So most of the clients I have are are female and that that means that they were born with male anatomy and that includes having thicker vocal cords and speaking, you know, the, the voice resonating from the chest. Mm-hmm. instead of the face. So what we want to do is not only raise the pitch and deal with making those vocal cords be able to produce a higher pitch safely without damaging them, which is a big part of my job as well. And then also moving the voice from the chest into the face. So we work on resonance exercises. Some of them are, are like using the letter M, like humming can cause a vibration in the face Hmm. and take some of the vibration out of the chest. That would be one example. And then another thing that's very important is the intonations and inflections because a male voice speaks in a more of a monotone. And also, if you wanted to stress a point, a male would tend to get louder on that word rather than go up in pitch. And it's a matter of saying, we're not going to get louder here. We're going to go up in pitch. Mm. So with those ups and downs, those inflections, there are a lot of females that are born females that have deep voices. But you know that they're a female because of the inflections, the rising and the falling of the tone. Uh, We work on breathiness. We work on volume being able to speak more softly. There's also a lot of nonverbals that go into it, such as eye contact and face contact, and vocabulary is different for a female as well. So we go into some of that as well. And, you know, my clients can be anywhere from 15 or 16 years old to I've had clients in their 70s Mm. that have said that they wanted to start living their true self and using their true voice. Hmm. 
Absolutely. And and it's it's important for someone to feel comfortable with what they have uh, decided that how they want to live. Mm-hmm. I was going to say the discomfort. No, I was going to say it's important to feel comfortable and also to be able to shed that discomfort because the discomfort that they have of feeling that difference between how they see themselves and how they sound um, or, you know, in many cases, of course, if they're not out yet where they can wear female clothing, how they, it's like, they call it dysmorphia, where they're actually seeing themselves a certain way, but then they have to dress a certain, you know, the other way. And the discomfort of living that lie just impacts them every day very intensely. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you about public speaking and, and you coach people on that. So when, when we talk about public speaking, some people, they, they equate it to it, it's worse than death. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. One of the things that I'm wondering is, do you help them besides overcome that fear, learn how to articulate better, how to pronounce words better? Are there tricks that you do to help them? Because public speaking also includes body movement and so forth. How do you handle mm-hmm. someone who comes to you and is looking to become a public speaker? Pretty much teaching, you know, working with them as far as being able to know that whatever they're delivering is for the benefit of the person that's listening to them. So they're they're kind of giving whoever their listener is, they're giving that listener a gift of the words that they're sharing with them. And what I tell everybody, and it really is true, they're going to sound better than they think they are. So they can have some confidence right then and there. As far as the body movements, I would say just to be relaxed. And I wouldn't say, you know, obviously, I, you know, you wouldn't tell someone to stand there with your hands in your pockets, but you don't have to have certain rehearsed movements with your hands or any parts of your body because then it can look fake. Mm-hmm. So you just want to be natural. You just kind of want to shake it off before you start. You just do some shoulder shrugs, some head rolls. You can drop your head down from your waist and just kind of shake your head and your face and just let it all go, that kind of thing. So it's relaxing the body is more important than anything else. As far as the face, again, you know, just having more expressiveness, but not where it's fake. You just don't want to have that flat, you know, monotone. You want to feel comfortable really being yourself, expressing yourself, maybe smiling at the appropriate time, using the eye contact. If someone, especially if they're nervous, we say to just find one or two people. If you're speaking to a group, find one or two people that are out there that you can connect with and kind of refer to and look at those people if they can make you feel more comfortable. You know, I kind of look at it almost, I use some trauma therapy when I'm working as well. So you really want to feel whatever you're saying, you want to be able to believe in it, give this message to whoever you're sharing it with, and be able to act as if your message has a lot of importance to whomever is benefiting from hearing it. What about coming across, you know, because... For the first time, someone could be really nervous and and their mm-hmm. body mechanics are going to show that. For example, if they're looking down, if they're looking up, if they're clenching their fists when they get nervous. What, what advice do you give someone 
especially if they look down a lot or they're reading their, their cue cards a lot and or maybe they've rehearsed the speech and then all of a sudden they get lost. How do you handle that? Mm-hmm. Well, the cue cards should have only bullet point words on them. You shouldn't have the words, you shouldn't have your speech written out word for word because then that's exactly what could happen that they lose their train of thought and then they have to try to find the whole sentence or the whole word, all the words or the whole sentence of what they're talking about or the whole paragraph. So it would really just be bullet points. You could start out, of course, by writing out a speech. Then what I do is I make it smaller. I'll do, I'll make it a smaller page. Eventually, I might go to a, a bunch of index cards and then eventually I'll know it so well. I'll kind of know the topic well enough to where it go, it would go on to one index card. And you want to just always have it set up. Most speeches are set up where there is an introduction and then you have the body of the speech and then you have a conclusion. So that's kind of what you want to follow. And then you would have kind of, you know, point A and then a couple of things about that and then point B and a couple of things about that. So having said that, when you feel organized, you can feel more confident that you, you know, that you're prepared. So I think part of being confident and and not being so nervous is knowing that you've done some preparation Mm -hmm. and that you feel at ease about it. You've kind of practiced talking about it and not reading it word for word because the looking down is something you wouldn't have to do other than just do a little glance down if everything, if you just have your bullet points on an index card with just some key words to remind you that that's what you were going to talk about. Like, let's say, for example, I was preparing to talk about the various type of work, types of work that I do. I wouldn't have a lot of information about transgender written down. I'd be prepared about it, but I might just list it as one of the things. It might just say working, uh, it might just say transgender clients. You know, maybe it would also say um, accent reduction. It would say um, dialect coaching. But I would have all the information already in my head. Right. Except for maybe a couple of words that I just want to make sure helps me, you know, triggers another stream of consciousness for me to keep talking. As far as really feeling nervous, it's very natural to feel nervous. There are going to be all kinds of chemicals going through your body when you're up there. And there are so many people, most people, I think, feel nervous when they're speaking, when they're doing public speaking. Mm-hmm. I Especially especially if it's anywhere in the beginning of them doing it. But I think it goes back to what I said before. You sound a lot better than you think you do. Because I taught for public speaking and effective communication at Broward College when it was Broward Community College some years back. And I would have classes of students. And at that time, speech, public speaking, I think it still is a required course in college. The first day, I would say, I know that all of you would rather be lying on a bed of nails than be here in this class and that your only reason you're here is because it's required. If it were an elective subject, that you wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they knew that I got it. They got it. And they would always, when they would finish, everyone would say, you sounded so great. And they would be, oh, my God, I was so nervous. I think I was terrible. 
Mm. And they would be, no, 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 that's not true. So I even had one student who was terrified. And then by after finishing the class, he said that he wanted to become a minister mm. because he so realized how much he loved public speaking. Right, right. I mean, I've heard of a lot of public speakers, even even some of the high-end ones. In their beginning stages, they used to throw up. They used to have all sweats mm-hmm. and... and and chills and, and so forth. Let's say you're you're on a, a stage and you're at a podium. A, a lot of people suggest don't hold on to the sides of the podium because your knuckles are going to turn white because you're squeezing it and you're nervous. Mm-hmm. Would you suggest like a pattern to walk around so people feel like when they make a point, they walk to one part of the stage, they make a different point, walk to a different part of the stage so that they're constantly in motion and, and engaging the people, because the worst thing to see, and I've been in many audiences where almost a lot of people, and I've seen so many amazing speakers and some speakers who have a really great message, but people are falling asleep in the crowd. What, what is the best advice mm-hmm. you can give someone to engage their audience? Yeah, I think that walking around is great. I think that, you know, you could definitely walk around, but not to the point where it will be distracting. Mm-hmm. It should always just be natural. It should always be, it should be a natural movement and not one that looks like it was superimposed on your feet. If it feels natural to walk to the other side of the room because you're making a different point, if it feels natural, put your hand, your arms out because that's, you know, you're kind of saying, I'm putting forth this information. But, you know, you also have, if you, when you watch Saturday Night Live, you'll see the host will just stand there. Very often they will clasp their hands in front of them, Mm -hmm. like down. In, you know, between their knees, let's say, or then they'll kind of, kind of move their hands outward and then inward, just outward and inward. But they're just standing there. Same thing with Bill Maher, just standing there. And he's so relaxed that he can just start scratching his head or his ear or his nose or whatever because he's so used to doing it. Mm -hmm. But I think that whatever, I think that it's rehearsing what you want to say before you get up there. And if it's organic, Meaning if it comes from inside you to move, that's how you should be moving. And just to know that when you're first going to start public speaking, you are going to be nervous. It is a work in progress and you're really not, you know, what you're going to do a year later is going to be very different from what you're doing now. And you can even share with your audience, you know, I'm pretty new at public speaking. I, um, I've been doing what I've been doing for a long time, but I just recently started talking about it. So I'm a little bit nervous. Just wanted to let you know that you could. Some people say that they'd rather not share that, but if you feel like it's organic for you to share it, then great. It's always good to have your audience on your side. And I'm sorry to be controversial with you, but I don't know if that would be good because you're kind of letting the people know like, oh, okay, this is going to be a boring guy or a girl. And I think that when you go into something, you should go in as an authority, especially if, if you're coming in and you're, going to sh- and you're going to have the stage and you either have a half hour, an hour, hour and a half, and you have to, I mean, it depends on, on the speech or, or the presentation. Some, sometimes it's 10 minutes, sometimes it's half hour, an hour. Me personally, that's just my thought. I, I think that when you are going to do a public speaking, no matter how nervous you are, if you show them your weakness, it, it's not going to be good for you. 
and, and I I don't mean to be controversial here. For me personally, I think that in in doing anything, uh, I think that you should first of all practice a lot. And when you are in that position that you are going to present in anything that you do, that you should feel confident enough to do it. And even though you may be nervous, that you should put your best foot forward. Just just do the best you can. Right. I think that that's a very good point. And, you know, depending on the audience and depending on the situation, especially if you need to come across as an authority about what you're sharing. You know, when someone's just sharing a personal life story, for example, and they're kind of nervous in front of a group and they're not there as an authority, but as a sharing situation, Mm -hmm. then it's probably more, you know, more appropriate to say, I'm kind of nervous. I haven't talked about this before, you know, because everyone else is in the same boat. If you're in there as an authority, I think that you're absolutely right, Raphael. And I think in that case, if you are very nervous and you see that you're doing whatever you can to prepare by yourself and you still don't feel like you're ready, then that's where it would be important to contact a speech coach absolutely to help you. And they may just actually work with you one time, two times. It does not have to be long-term investment just to give you enough to say, now I feel like I can do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think that someone who is going to go into the realm of public speaking should seek some help without a doubt. What are, you, what are your feelings mm-hmm. on videotaping your presentation as you do the whole thing by yourself? Because I, I've heard a lot of times that you should do your speech at least 10 times by yourself with no one around. And then maybe on the 10th one, you should record it and to see how you actually present, what you're doing with your hands, how your speech is, your timing. Because if you're, you're talking very fast, some people may not hear all the words that you're trying to, to say because maybe you're not articulating them or pronouncing them fully. And then also maybe your speech is too slow. And so you have to have fluctuations as to how you're doing everything. How do you feel about videotaping? before you actually present? Yeah, I think that that's a great idea because anything that's done on camera is very revealing. And we really have no idea of what we're really doing as far as, like you said, the way that you may be having your hand a little awkward or something about your, you know, your positioning or even an expression that you're using with your face and you may not even be aware of all the fillers that you're using, all the ums and well and uh you know, when you go like that. And then when you record it and you video record it, you get a lot of information. And then you can sort of take notes on that and say, well, let me see if I can cut back on some of those movements, some of those fillers. And certainly certainly would help. Definitely. And and I think being in front of a coach and, and presenting your speech to the coach, because like you yourself, you probably would say, you, you, wait, you sl- slow down, slow down. And you got to put a pause there. Mm-hmm. And the way you're moving your hands, they look very flappy. You got to have more power in your hands or you ha- your hands have to be open. Your hands have to express what you're actually speaking about, because if they don't, it just it looks off. So I think being in front of, of mm-hmm. someone like yourself and doing the speech in front of someone it is going to help you just come across as an authority, especially if, if you are going to start doing public speaking where you are an authority. Because if, if you look at a lot of politicians, man, do they practice. 
And, and you know, mm-hmm. their speeches are written for them. A lot of them are. It's Some of them are just incredible. And, and the, their gestures and their movement and their speech and their, their pauses so that it's more dramatic. And, and it, to me, it doesn't matter the politician. It's just the speech and the way they deliver it is what I... I love. I love watching that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's really true. It's really fascinating to watch a good speaker do their thing. Very much so. Like Bill Clinton, Obama, President Obama. Those guys were like mm-hmm. amazing. Totally. Totally. Because they're also very conversational mm-hmm. when they give their speech. It doesn't sound like they're reading off a of paper. It doesn't sound like they're trying to say the right buzzwords or cliches or be manipulative and just kind of give some kind of a declaration of what they're saying, it's really like they're talking with you instead of talking at you. And I think that is also very, very important to be, even if you're the only one speaking, which you are the only one speaking when you're giving a speech presentation until it's Q&A time, you basically are needing to engage with the audience and you want it to still be interactive, even though you are the only one that's talking. So again, I think that's the key, talking with your audience rather than at your audience or to your audience. Right, right. You you, you brought something up that, that kind of triggered something for me when you said the Q&A portion, because a lot of people lose it when it comes to the Q&A because maybe they didn't think of those questions. And that's when they, their nerves really pop up and all of a sudden they're doing the ums and the um, the uh, uh, uh. so they're doing all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. To have your speech ready, I think that you also need to prepare ahead of time because if you are going to have a Q&A part to your speech, then you kind of like have to prepare ahead and kind of have an idea of what Q&A is going to be about and kind of pre-frame that for yourself so you're not caught off guard. Right, for sure. I think that the, the Q&A, you can, there's a couple of different ways of doing Q&A. You, you can have your audience submit questions in advance, even the, you know, the day of kind of gives you know, what you're going to answer. And then you say, oh, I got this question for that. So it gives you a moment rather than be having what we call like confrontational questioning where someone can raise their hand ask you a question, and then you're going to explain it. And if you're going to do that, just remember when you're answering a question, just to kind of give an example, try to be as concise as possible, and you don't have to worry about providing every detail in the answer. Right. More of a generic type of answer, as long as you are answering it, but don't go into further details. Yeah. You don't have to dig up every detail to try to retrieve every bit of knowledge that you have. Just kind of just give some sort of an answer that will just satisfy the question. And then, of course, whoever's asking the question can research into it further or contact you after your speech, after your presentation to be able to get more information from you. Mm Excellent. Evelyn, tell me, if somebody wants to reach out and find out more about you or maybe use your services, how can they do that? They can go to my website, which is www.wellspokenpro.com. They can also find me on Facebook. I'm Evelyn Lerner Grossman. And I also have a Facebook page, which is called the Speech Studio Mm. of South Florida. And I'm on Instagram as the speech studio. And they can also even just call me 954-270-7030. Perfect. So they can call me, text me, 
and I'm here anytime for consultations, free consultations on the phone, in fact. Nice, nice, nice. And, and, you know, I think anybody who is looking to work with their dialect or, you know, reduce their accent or even if they're, they're going to be pursuing their career in acting should definitely contact you because there are so many different dialects that certain movies will ask for. And, and I think that's important. Thank you. Yes, I, I agree. I think it's great to have as far as even having as part of your range you have it on your resume, you can have on your resume that you're able to perform with a range of different dialects. And therefore, when your talent agent gets submitted a, a, a casting call, they can send you to go for that casting or that audition so that you're then opening up the possibility of more opportunities and being able to also book those opportunities. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. And I would also say that if somebody wanted to see an example of my work um, on STARS, you can go on demand. And I was I was the dialect coach for the show called Magic City, where I needed to coach nice. the actors for their dialects and to reduce their accent. So just putting that out there as well. Awesome. Well, thank you for today, Evelyn. I really appreciate your time and spending it with us. And, and I think I learned so much by talking to you, and I appreciate that. It was completely my pleasure, Raphael. Wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Likewise, likewise. Have an amazing day. You too. Okay. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'll be back with a new episode and a new guest. You can find all episodes of the Coaching Call podcast on Apple, Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I ask that you please leave me an honest review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. I'm trying to keep this episode free of advertisements. Anything you can donate to the cause is greatly appreciated. To donate, go to paypal.me backslash Thank you and I really appreciate your help.